Welcome to episode 30. Really, it's probably 500, but it's 30 of the newest iteration. Um, I'm wondering, like this one, as well as the last one, how many people, how many individuals, how many humans, how many men and women uh, got through before you found out that uh, it was a book review? <laughs> I can assume the same so here because the book, I'm doing another book review today. Um, so, uh, um, almost like someone coming to my door and I'm not purchasing what you want, but I'll see them next week to ask again. I'll say that to you now. So if you're not here for the book review, then I'll catch you next time. Um, I'm, I am curious though, how many are here because of the book review, the book's name, because if that's the title, I should, I, I don't know. Why am I giggling? Um, waiting for God. That's the book title. And that's what I'm reviewing this week. Uh, book by Simone Vile. Uh, pronounced vile at the end. Um, it's spelled W-E-I-L, uh, S-I-M-O-N-E. And I had heard about uh, Simone's um, writings and perspectives from uh, another philosophy podcast. And uh, I was just uh, speaking with someone yesterday about this that I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but it's just an idea. I think I'm going to take, uh, so here's the issue. I have, I have a number of books in the lineup to do and to read and that I want to get to that. Like, I, it's not that I want to get, to, I really want to get to some of them are big, some of them are long, some of them are going to take a lot. Okay. And, and you, you're like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm just going to hold it at that number of books that I have to read in that list, which I think it's, it's definitely into 15 to 20 now. Okay. So that's an indication too, that it's not a problem, a psychological problem. Uh, Cause I think if it's into the thirties or forties, that's the psychological problem. Anyways, neither here nor there, how I come up with that number being a psychological problem or not. Um, I keep listening, right. To people talk in podcasts and I have to get their book. You know, I gotta get, I gotta read up more about it. I gotta make sense of things. This is the way, it's just the way I work. So it's the cursing and a blessing. Um, that the only way I'm going to make sense of things is not to listen to the same person on eight different podcasts. That could total, what, eight hours total, right? Um, but if it's eight hours total, maybe that's how long it takes to read their book. Ooh. Anyways, um, I heard about Simone Vile uh, from another podcast, and here I am. And like in the future, I have a number of things, though, that I'm, I will speak about in the Live a Larger Life episode um, coming up. Um, <clears throat> as you can imagine, the the three pillars of what uh, I believe in uh, would be to move daily, uh, eat real food, and learn and adapt. And the book review comes under the learn and adapt. And it also, as a reminder, it helps me. Uh, it helps me uh, really, really tighten up my listening skills. It also helps me in my review skills, my oratory skills. It also uh, helps me imprint things. So there's other ways that that imprinting was done before it was just to read a book. And then, um, 
you know, maybe recall it somehow in a conversation that just came up um, or purposeful recall in a conversation that just came up. And so now I'm adding an element to it. I'm going to read the book. I'm going to do a book review. I'm going to mention it in recent conversations and other podcasts I do or other conversations. Um, and also, which was always in place, I used to speak to my girls about it because we just share, you know, what we're up to with regards to reading. Um, mind you, I listen to a lot more of what they tell me about their books reading as they listen to mine. <laughs> but it's besides the fact it still helps me imprint things, helps me make sense of things. Um, and I don't know if it gives me answers, but it certainly uh, helps me along the way. So yeah, <clears throat> this is episode 30. Um, and I'll read a little bit from the back cover as I do with most of them to kind of give you a heads up. <sighs> Emerging from the thought-provoking discussions and correspondence Simone Weil had with the Reverend Father Perrin, this classic collection of essays contained the renowned philosopher and social activist's most profound meditations on the relationship of human life to the realm of the transcendent. An enduring masterwork and one of the most neglected resources of our century. Waiting for God will continue to influence spiritual and political thought for centuries to come. That was written by Adrian Rich, who wrote a review. Um, What's under uh, Simone Weil's uh, picture is she was born in 1909 and died in 1943, so was 34 years of age, which will, in my opinion, in my book review, have a central part to play in my conversations. Uh, Simone was born in Paris and died in Ashford, England, a religious philosopher, essayist, dr dramatist, and poet as well as a social critic and political activist, Vile was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. Her other works include Gravity and Grace and The Need for Roots. So on the outset, there's probably some other readings I have to do, but I will give an honest opinion from my reading of this, regardless of what I learned from Stephen on uh, Philosophize This podcast, and regardless of her other readings, this is what I'm taking from this one, and that would make it that would make it real. Now, um, so the the basic breakup of the book um, was letters that she was writing to either her father or a confidant with regards to the things that were going on in her head, in her in her views, uh, as mentioned in the back. Um, how did they say it? her views on relationship of human life to the realm of the transcendent, you know, put another way. Um, it was her, uh, it was her, uh, you know, uh, love really, uh, deep love for God and what God is the definition of God. Um, and really um, these initial letters discuss her conversation with these with these individuals uh not only her father and father parent i think maybe another but um it was conversations on baptism and uh you know um her spiritual autobiography and um really what it sounded to me at the end was this 
a strenuous thing that people go through in trying to figure out what's certain in their life. And I think from how I read it, she was certain of God and certain of Christianity, but uh, really had some issues with the church and the church setting. Um, so I don't know, in different times and different measures, that would be a, a reformer or a protestant from that particular idea. Um, she seems to have fallen clearly under a Christian classification, um, but also apologetic to other forms of gods and beliefs, but really was working hard against atheism. And, uh, you know, so trying to, as best as possible, speak about, you know, where belief comes from and um, how we come to that, but didn't give adequate time, in my opinion, to the non-believing side or the unbelief side or the or a new version of what unfaithful would be um, and I think there's some particular reasons for that um, in summary too I think in the end especially the, you know uh, saying on the back here vile was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century I don't know I disagree with that um, there's a man, there's a lot of great thinkers in the 20th century. And in my opinion, a great thinker in the 20th century is not going to proclaim certainty. Um, a, a great thinker in the 20th century, century is going to uh, speak about how ideas come about and speak about the, you know, how knowledge is gained and speak about how, what led, what leads one and what leads people to faith. You know, I think that would be a great thinker. Um, they may still fall on one side or the other, but uh, I don't think, I don't think uh, Simone Weil gets that classification, in my opinion. Uh, to be really frank, I think that she was a sick, um, mentally unstable uh, young woman who had uh, quite a few challenges, um, you know, in her upbringing. Um, and something went on there that we have, we only have a couple of clues on, which I'll talk about in the introduction that give us an indication that right from the beginning, there was, there was something, something up. And that could lead to, in my opinion, someone in their twenties and thirties, seeming like a, a, a genius savant, but really they have sociopath disorders and they have uh, psycho psychological disorders. Um, now inside some of the toolbox for some of these individuals, they can think about and come up with ideas and things that a lot of people can't. And I think this is where uh, it finished off for Simone, where people looked at her intentions as being so, you know, interesting and varied from you know the scaring of being normative that uh, people thought it was genius level and I really don't I see a um, I, I saw I from only this reading I see a sad young girl um, that didn't grow up that's what I see so inside those letters just as a point of interest from the start 
the introduction is written by, um, who's the introduction written by? Leslie Fielder uh, in Montana State University, Missoula, Montana, April 29th, 1951. Okay, so this introduction is written in 1951, and it's important to think about that with regards to how people uh, are perceived in the world. So Leslie is an example. I'm just going to make an assumption here. You know, let's say Leslie was born in 1910, okay? So think about that. You know, when she was nine, was it 1919, 17? 1917. So when she was seven, you know, the, the what at the time was considered the war to end all wars was just beginning, you know? Um, when she was in her 20s into her 30s, there was a lot of turmoil and uh, economic depression and a lot of, you know, bad shit happening. But things turned around in the 30s, you know. So depending upon if Leslie was in the United States at the time, you can just see how um, she could write this introduction that kind of really apologizes. She She's right, seated as an apologist to Simone Viles' uh, methods and ideas. Um, and so the introduction basically just gives us a breakdown, you know, of Simone and the smaller parts of, um, you know, her life and her upbringing. And I'll just hit on only a couple of touches of things that really brought me to consider some issues at play. So underneath uh, her life, uh, it said at the age of five, she refused to eat sugar. Okay, did anyone else pause at that one? <laughs> at the age of five, she refused to eat sugar as long as the soldiers at the front were not able to get it. Okay, think about this, right? How can we move on from this particular sentence to think that from the get-go, there's something regardless embedded that is really corrupt and wrong? This is, what, this is what Leslie goes on to speak about her. The war had brought the sense of human misery into her protected milieu for the first time. And her typical pattern of response was already set to deny herself what the most unfortunate were unable to enjoy. Really? Leslie? Really? At five years of age? You think that is actually happening? She has the wherewithal to think about that? This particular gesture, she was later to admit, in typical scrupulous bit of self-analysis, might have been prompted as by much an urge to tease her mother as by an unselfish desire to share the lot of the poor. Okay, so in hindsight, Simone is saying, looking back on that, action at eight years of age five, I think it was basically done to tease my mother as opposed to possibly an unselfish desire, right? Isn't it possible that we could just be okay with the fact that she may have some cognitive repertoire issues here? You know, isn't that possible? After this, um, you could see it again in different ways. As a biologist, I see it one way. You know, I, I mean biologist in the strict um, non-technical professor terms, but I, I did biology in university. I don't know if that classifies me as someone who knows biology, but 
Okay, I'm a small bee biologist, okay? Um, says at 14, she passed through the darkest spiritual crisis of her life. Which generally, it happens a lot. It generally happens a lot to people at this age. Feeling herself pushed to the very verge of suicide by an acute sense of her absolute unworthiness and by the onslaught of mind-grade headaches of an unbearable intensity. The headaches never left her afterward, not even in her moments of extremist joy. Well, first of all, these are just recalls, okay? Not taking anything away from it, but, you know. And uh, who doesn't, at 14 years of life, as a female possibly, go through some really darker times, right? And so this means it's 1923. Maybe those are the dark times. You know? Maybe that's what we mean by that. You know? The root of her trouble seemed to have been her relationship with her brother, a mathematical prodigy, beside whose brilliance she felt herself stumbling and stupid. Her later academic successes in the almost universal respect accorded her real intelligence seemed never to have convinced her that she had any intellectual talent. I mean, she had parental issues. She had peer issues with her friends, right? She had an internal struggle, struggle with the feminine, as comes up here. It says, certainly forever afterwards, she did her best to destroy what in her beautiful and superficial charming to turn herself into the anti-mask of the appealing young girl. The face in her photographs is absolute in its refusal to be charming. You know, I just see that as, as, as a struggle that a lot of young females have with perception and how, they care, how they're going to carry themselves in the world. You know, I could go on and on. Anyways, let's put all those together, right? There's some big time issues as a young age. Now she's getting into this reproductive area, which is very sensitive and transformative. Uh, there's, there's some issues. She also has some peer stuff. She has family stuff. She has internal strife. So inside, real close to her, and then as far on the outside, there's some big time struggles, right? You know, and from what Leslie says, to quote Leslie, never was she able to believe that she truly possessed the quality she saw so spectacularly in her own brother, the kind of genius that was honestly to be envied insofar as it promised not merely exterior success, but also access to the very kingdom of truth. Hmm. Right? seems to me she thought that she because what she saw in her brother she she opposed it she placed it on herself to think that she wouldn't be intelligent enough to know truth now if i'm just a guessing or betting man i would say that that could light a flame inside of someone to get them to go one side and go full on one side right so we hear this about her life um, not to, not to commit, you know, this is called committing perjury inside of here. No, eh. um, went to school, you know, had some troubles, um, had to move around, had to rely on her parents, had to rely on, you know, trying to get a job and then either with regards to sickness or lack of health or some kind of physical ailment could not continue, um, you know, she, throughout this period of time, um, you know, believed that religious was absurd and mad and folly, 
as these in these younger times, you know, through work and starting her education, etc., which a lot of people do go through that. That's a that's a normative thing, right? Um, you know, ironically, you know, this could have been fueled by the times, right? Which it was for a lot. Marxism sneak was sneaking in, you know, in uh, in her twenties and in the nineteen twenties. So, you know, don't don't look too far around that to say that that could have a part to play with it in regards to the culture. Um, and she she was rescued by her parents two to three times throughout her life and throughout her education. Leslie said that what her main things were to distinguish her own secret life from such mysticism became one of the main objects of her thought. To distinguish her own secret life from mysticism became one of the main objects. And to this, that's, to this I find that's fantastic, right? If she was to continue on, if someone was to continue on and live till she was 84, like another 50 years, don't you think, based upon just absolute uh, reading and uh, opening of the brain, and let's say other things happened, like she met uh, a partner for life, she reproduced and had uh, successfully some children, um, she, you know, uh, uh, built something, right? Either a family or a house. Um, do you think you have a different perspective, right? That's what you have to ask. Now, she didn't, so we could say that um, she probably could have, and this is where it comes into, ironically, her whole story being mystical, that it shouldn't have been. She could have just kept her thoughts in her head. Right? She could have kept her thoughts in her head, and that would have been fine, and not gone any further than that. Um, at 33 years of age, she's still with her parents, you know? Um, and I'm just saying, I, I consider her to be crazy because uh, this is what Leslie wrote. Um, in May 1942, she finally agreed to accompany her parents who had been urging her for a long time and set sail for America. Before her departure, she remarked ruefully to a friend, don't you think the sea might serve me as a baptismal font? But America proved intolerable to her. Simply to be in so secure a land was, no matter how one tried to live, to enjoy what most men could not attain. Now, how do I read into that? Um, I think she's a whiny, mentally unstable uh, 33-year-old. That's what I think. America being intolerable because it's a secure land? I really think that you're crazy. I, have, I don't, There's no other way to put it, right? There's no other way to put it. Um, and maybe her parents tried to help, you know? You know, she seemed to have... Uh, this, I guess you'd call it a wishy-washy concepts or ideas in early writings and early, you know, conversations and early um, autobiographical pieces of, of uh, information. And it seemed that she was going back and forth with all just rehash, going back and forth, right? 
uh, belief and non-belief, faith and unfaith, you know, and I think that's a, that's a great process, you know, uh, and it just, you know, especially, um, what I felt that, uh, in the introduction, Leslie had discussed, uh, three main factors that converge in Simone's interest in the myth, um, is that she honored Plato. Um, that was the first, you know, uh, one of the, one of the main factors. Uh, second, um, she believed in multiple revelations. Um, and third, um, uh, this, this concept of what would be called the special gospel of the poor. And what Leslie says was a treasury of insights into the beauty of the world. Uh, I don't see it that way. Right. But of course that word oppression is used in the sentence. In our uprooted world, the alienated oppressed can no longer decipher for themselves. Oppressed? She was only oppressing herself in her own mind. From what I read and what I see as to how she was raised and how she had an opportunity for education and where she went with it and having to rely on her parents to rescue her and really thinking that America uh, was so open and free that it, that it was scary to her and she had to get out of it. This is a, this is a sick individual. And almost at the, at the beginning of this book, as I get through that story, I can't even know, you know, um, I can't even, I can't, you know, I can't even go on seeing how she could see things. It was very difficult for me to pick up anything there forward within waiting for God that was useful. Although I did, but it, it was difficult because I looked at it from that lens, you know, um, in her essential thought that Leslie discusses. She mentions her being consumed by consuming. She had a lot of thought process on consumption. Um, the dangerous line. Yeah. So the introduction started me off with that. And then when we get into letters, first letter was her concerns around baptism, uh, concern around will and the concept of will, um, the concept of sacraments and the afra afraid of leaving the, uh, um, what we see in arrogance of belief, afraid of leaving the unbelievers alone, right? afraid of leaving them just to themselves to figure stuff out. Um, you know, that's a question we could all ask is what's your, what's, what are you afraid of in leaving everyone alone to their own beliefs? What fears do you have in that? Um, you know, what fears do we have in that? Anyways, this first letter was basically her expressing and sharing her thoughts with her father which allowed her to open up and investigate what she truly believes. But as I said, her, uh, it, it, she 
brought to her own writing and explanation her love of God, but not love of church. And I guess it's based upon my education, but that doesn't sound like a mystic to me. That sounds like a Protestant or a reformer based upon how I know it. Um, then in the second letter, um, she talks about her fears of um, tribalism and conformity in the church, right? And goes through in detail um, in the respective letter insisting why she's not attending church and why she's not doing baptism. And um, what I took down as a quote, which was interesting, um, she said, only obedience is invulnerable for all time. That is, you know, the way I took it is that one's braver for not abiding to the church's ways. Um, and that's what she explained in the second letter. Um, in the third letter, which was when she was 33 years of age, April 16th, 1942, um, written to her father, uh, what I basically saw it as, and I took down as a note, is basically a suicide note. Yeah, that's, a, that's I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, well-versed in this. Um, but that's basically as I took it at this point. And I wrote down, again, so, someone should have given her, someone should have taken this piece of paper and brought it to the authorities. Now, I don't know what authority means at that time. I don't know if there was any form of systematic help. I don't know if there was any form of help at this time, but that's the way I, yeah. That's how I see it. In the fourth letter, it was pretty much a, a spiritual autobiography. That was the name of it. It was written from Marseille, France, about May 15th. This is the PS, uh, but it had it started. It says PS to be read first. This letter is fearfully long, but as there is no question of an answer, especially as I shall doubtless have gone before it reaches you. Do you hear that? You have years ahead of you in which to read it if you care to. Read it all the same, one day or another. And inside of that, you know, uh, she again was writing um, about how she she felt that she came to this understanding. Um, and the more she wrote it out, the more, anyways, to me, had understood that at this time of her life, um, she didn't give, uh, she should have given more reading to the current, let's call it astronomical, cosmological, materialist, uh, reason-based, scientific conversation. But she didn't. What I underlined in this uh, letter that she wrote, and it says, I have an extremely severe standard for intellectual honesty. Anyone who says that, says that, you know, uh, your radar should go up. That's how the sentence starts. I have an extremely severe standard for intellectual honesty. 
and she continues, so severe that I never met anyone who did not seem to fall short of it in more than one respect. And I am always afraid of failing in it myself. We can't, but she couldn't be led by, you can't be led by fear. But then again, as I said, her cognitive repertoires are not at the top. Socially, she's not out there. Socially, she can't mix and mingle. She hasn't really lived a life. She's into her 30s and has expressed one out of six of the top things in those those areas that people should express and, and sorry, express and, and experience. So she went to school. That's it. But the, the five other things, which we could save for another time, she didn't. So how do you, how do you propose to uh, make that statement, right, that you've got a severe standard for honesty, intellectual honesty, when you really didn't read all the texts? You're only reading one. You're only reading the one that says there is a God and these are all the reasons why it is true and I will not listen to anything else. Is that intellectual honesty? So pretty much by, as I said, by writing this out and speaking it out, you can see that um, she calls this she calls this desire an affliction that had, you know, under her language, had killed my youth. Quote, I'll quote her, that contact with affliction had killed my youth. Yeah. But she should have went on, right? Um, she discusses in this uh, letter as well in 1938 when she's 29 years of age um, where she had, again, severe headaches and some physical disabilities. This is all, of course, without explaining what is going on in her life. So again, we have to make these assumptions, right? Um, and, you know, continues on talking about um, all followers being slaves and, of course, connecting that to her uh, disrespect of the church. Um, you know, uh, and this is where, you know, I'm, Again, I'm questioning reality here, is, is in the letter she said, I used to think I was merely reciting um, a poem, but without my knowing it, the, re the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that, as I told you, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. So she wrote that. Um, and to go on in the next paragraph, she says, um, there's nothing more favorable to intellectual progress for as far as possible, I only read what I am hungry for at the moment when I have an appetite for it and then I do not read, I eat. God in his mercy had prevented me from reading the mystics so that it should be evident to me that I had not invented this absolutely unexpected contact. 
<laughs> and that's contact by JC, right? Um, yeah. Having a struggle session, really. Not just me, but her also. Um, and again, another point in here why I knew this felt like suicide note comprehension. Uh, she says, I should never have been able to take it upon myself to tell you all this had it not been for the fact that I'm going away. And as I am going more or less with the idea of probable death, I do not believe that I have the right to keep it to myself. Yeah, she wrote that. Um, where, where she showed in her writing that her brain was corrupted by um, things. Um, she says, if I am sad, it comes primarily from the permanent sadness that destiny has imprinted forever upon my emotions, where the greatest and purest joys can only be superimposed and that at the price of a great effort of attention. It comes also from my miserable and continual sins and from all the calamities of our time and of all those of all the past centuries. Can you, can you, or is anyone getting the arrogance inside this, right? That she really thinks she's the center of the universe and she's taking it upon her to feel all the previous sins besides the fact that you can see how her brain is just getting broken by assuming that her entire pain and sorrow is coming from that, the concept of sinning, right? Yeah, this letter is long. Um, nothing more to go on here. Basically, uh, in that full letter, she um, summarized how her faith came to be. It brought up the, you know, what I saw as Catholic versus Protestant and brought up the concept of practice and what that means. Um, the fifth letter, it's called Her Intellectual Vocation. Um, again, she has this, what I see anyways, she thinks her thoughts are super special. She says, the conditions of intellectual or artistic creation are so intimate and secret that no one can penetrate into them from the outside. I know that artists excuse their bad actions in this way, but it has to do with something very different in my case. Right? Oh, no. In my case, it's different. I really, I'm really feeling the wrath and the suffering, you know? No one else feels what I'm feeling. Um, the last letter, oh, and this one I think is to, yeah, it's to Father Perrin, um, and it's pretty much summarized. I don't have a lot of notes in here, so I think at this point I was just like, okay, but she had the balls or ovaries to say, um, that, uh, the church and the priest connection is wrong. And she's speaking this to Father Perrin by saying, I believe this imperfection comes from attaching yourself to the church as to an earthly country. As a matter of fact, as well as being your bond with the heavenly country, it is a terrestrial country for you. 
you live there in an atmosphere of human warmth that makes a little attachment almost inevitable. Yeah. So, um, goes on to uh, write some essays, and I'll be brief in these, but one is on uh, reflections on the right to use school studies with a view to the love of God, right? Um, talks about uh, what she called uh, attention and prayer, um, and how one can learn, in my opinion, how you call something different, say, learns how to meditate on things. Um the, the summarizing of that chapter is that she believes that schooling is an entry into knowing God better. Um, the next uh, essay was on the love of God and affliction. Um, and this is the asterisk for affliction. No English word exactly conveys the meaning of the French malheur. Our word unhappiness is a negative term and far too weak. Affliction is the nearest equivalent, but not quite satisfactory. Malheur has in it a sense of inevitability and doom. The opening sentence says it all. In the realm of suffering, affliction is something apart, specific, and irreducible. She's basically, you know, saying a man loses half his soul the day he becomes a slave, uh, based upon what she's believing is the slavery to the church, right? But still, the whole time professing love for Christ and following God, I just couldn't uh, not connecting. Uh, one that I one piece I understand inside of here, she started getting into uh, some her perspective, anyways, on science and matter. Uh, she says matter is entirely passive and in consequence, entirely obedient to God's will. So if, that, if that's not a true statement, but if that's what she believes, she believes that God is not, you know, that God is nature's master. So you can see where the lines are drawn, right? She goes on to say, matter is not beautiful when it obeys man, but only when it obeys God. How about earthquakes in, in uh, Syria or Turkey? How about the evolution of plant species? You see, there's just so much. <laughs> I'm laughing because at the end of that chapter, the summary I wrote down, I'm not sure what's going on in this chapter. Forms of the Implicit Love of God is the next essay. Uh... Uh, some things underlined I have some questions on. I put down WTF, does this mean? We exist only because God consents to think us into being, although really we have no existence. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm not apologizing, but I'm, I find that funny. Next sentence, God alone has this power, the power really to think into being that which does not exist. Um, then she says, the love of our neighbor is the love which comes down from God to man. Right? So again, it opens up what she believes. That is a false statement, right? Monkeys, even, our cousins have done this. Um, 
if you don't even want to go with monkeys, okay, something else, find something else. <laughs> but uh, these connections and community, these organisms working together, um, etc., life working together, that's been going on for millions of years. Millions of years. And if that is what she's saying is God, then then don't call it God, in my opinion. Um, other questionable things written down. Punishment cannot be humane unless it passes through Christ. Really? Um, another one I underlined, I want to question. The separation between civil institutions and religious life will be a crime. What? I guess that's why she didn't come to America. We have, uh, thankfully, writings by Jefferson and Thomas Paine to question some of that. Love of the order of the world. Just flipping through to see if there's anything I want to you know, jump on. And yeah, I'm not getting anything else that's going to be helpful for my reminding or remembering. Um, it does make me pause and reflect as I'm looking away from the page to say, you know, what should be remembered that's going to be helpful? You know, or should you dig into all those things that I just don't agree with, you know, and look past the point that I feel right from the get-go of this perception I had of her and learn something. I just not, I see so many misinterpretations of a young troubled girl, really. Um, she tiptoes into beauty which is no business, in my opinion, being in, in the conversation. Um, and I, from a couple of paragraphs, um, I wrote down in the, in the side note without reading you the paragraphs, um, inside of this, I wrote, I wrote down, inside of this essay, using scripture gets really old. And she seems to not be able to have an original thought. That's what I wrote down freestyle in the column. Again, that's my perspective, um, but that's it. You know, you, you've reflected, you've come up with things, you know how to write, uh, you're alone, you, you went to school, and so you really feel that um, those things, maybe she didn't feel that, but I don't think anyone should be saying and, and holding this up high, right? It's a contribution. Right, it's a contribution. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah, so many things in here that I had issues with. Another one in her writings. Religious things are pure by right, theoretically, hypothetically, by convention. Really? How about the abuse that goes on 
in churches. No one wants to discuss that one. Maybe they didn't discuss that back then. Um, yeah, some other things I wrote down uh, about her just not being of a time, you know, like, remember at these times of writing for her in the 1930s, you know, um, she didn't know that DNA, you know, uh, was coming up and she didn't know that CRISPR was coming up. She didn't know the Hubble space scope was coming up. Right. So guess you got to give it to her in that light that if you can come up with things to think about right at this point in time. But as soon as I say that there was a lot of much better thinkers, you know, up to this point in time, right? I don't need to list them. That's not for me to do. That's your burden, you know, as a reader of this to go and find, you know? Um, so I would say the readings, um, and waiting for God is nothing more than just a sharing of, of ideas by a troubled young girl. To hold it up high, to say that it's one of the highest intellectual thought processes in the 20th century, gosh, that's a monstrosity of a stretch. Um, a monstrosity of a stretch. Here's what I wrote down the side who her arrogance at the highest to think is quote unquote from Simone Bile to think that love in any of these forms can exist anywhere where Christ is absent is to belittle him so grievously that it amounts to an outrage. It is impious and almost sacrilegious. So what she's saying to think that love can exist outside of Christianity is actually offering a belittling of Jesus and it should amount to an outrage. That's what she's saying. She says it is impious and almost sacrilegious. That's just, to me, that's the highest form of arrogance. Yeah. Of, of someone who knows nothing about love. She knew a lot about what she perceived to be oppression and suffering, but couldn't even get out of her way. She probably could have landed in a country that could have saved her life and loved it. But she didn't even want to do it. So she didn't know love. She didn't accept love. So how do you how can you talk about what love is? Right? She didn't even understand gravity. Let's think about that, okay? Yeah, she finishes with, uh, like, her interpretation of Our Father, the prayer. Um, and I honestly didn't read it. I just wrote down I didn't read it. Um, to finish, which I was kind of impressed with at the end, is that the author of this book, uh, not Simone Weil, but the one who wrote this, also offered a write-up of who Simone Weil was, which was good. And it, I, I detailed that for you as to how troubled she was and how she got to where she is. Um, uh, but then there was also some critiques inside of this, which I really appreciated. And I'll finish with that. And then I'll actually finish with a quote uh, by Simone Weil 
that uh, to give you know her the last straw she will get but um, so first first the positive one by T.S. Eliot we must simply expose ourselves to the personality of a woman of genius of a kind of genius akin to that of the saints okay Flannery O'Connor goes on to say Vales is the most comical life I have ever read about and the most truly tragic and terrible that was the critique <laughs> Kenneth Rexroth from The Nation writes Simone Bile was a dying girl hers was a spastic moribund intellectual and spiritual agony we can sympathize with it be moved to tears by it much as we are by the last awful lunacies of Antonin Artro, but we imitate it allow it to infect us at our peril this is a Kierkegaard who refuses to leap angst for angst sake anguish is not enough when it is made an end in itself it takes on a holy or unholy folly I could not could not have said that better myself <laughs> so this is after I had finished it and I'm like oh they improved they they wrote some critiques in here I'd be interested to see what they have to say lo and behold it's the way I saw it um, and by Susan Sontag the New York Review of Books says such writers as Kierkegaard Nietzsche Dostoevsky Kafka Baudelaire Rimbaud Guinée and Simone Weil, all in one sentence, have their authority with us because of their air of unhealthiness. Their unhealthiness is their soundness and is what carries conviction. Anything from Simone Biles' pen is worth reading. First of all, what a shame to put those names in the same sentence as Simone Biles. For my opinion, it's horrible, but also to bring out the similarities in there but I don't think unhealthiness should be a virtue. Do you? I don't know. Anyways, I'll finish with a quote from Simone Weil, and I'll pick it biasly. Yeah, here. This is an interesting one we'll finish with. Those who are unhappy have no need for anything in this world but people capable of giving them their attention. <laughs>